The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. We've been talking about surrender and community and mission, our core values, and today's our last week as we dive in to talk about surrender, and we're going to be in Psalm 67. Listen, whatever your name is, you didn't give it to yourself. I don't know if you know that. Not your first name or your last name, and your your name kind of brings luggage with it, right? There's some baggage, good or bad, whether from your ancestors or those of the person you married, your last name means something. That could be great or that could be difficult. It took a lot to get you here. Maybe you had parents that were great growing up and they've strayed from the Lord and so your name is difficult when you think about really who, who you are and what your family means. Maybe you had parents that weren't really following the Lord and now they are. Or maybe they've just been consistently great or, or hard. You're, you're part of a story. It might be a story with a great plot line or it might be kind of like Napoleon Dynamite, right? But you are not just an island. In fact, you've got two parents, four grandparents, eight great-grandparents, 16 great-great-grandparents, 32 third-great-grandparents, 64 fourth-great-grandparents, 128 fifth-great-grandparents, 256 sixth-great-grandparents. And if you carry it out 12 generations over the last 400 years, it took 4,096 people for you to exist. You think about how many struggles, battles, so much sadness and happiness, wars, famine, disease, a variety of love stories and hope for the future. You think about all that had to happen and all who had to survive just for you to exist in the world. You're here on purpose. You're not a mistake. So consider today either an invitation or a reminder that not just are you part of a physical, historical family, but you're part of a spiritual, historical family if you're in Christ. You're part of the people of God, and we have a mission. We have a mission, and at TBC, we talk about mission in the context of surrender and community, mission flows from surrender to Jesus in a communal context. As we were talking about this in staff this week, David Richardson, our adult ministries and small groups pastor, he, he described what surrender looks like in a way that I just loved. He says, my plans for today and my plans for life are set aside for the sake of Christ. I surrender my plans, my agenda, my dreams, all I am, have, and hope to be for the sake of Christ. And we do that as part of community. One author that I am enjoying right now says, community, the church, is both central to Christ's work and to God's redemptive plan. For example, Paul says that due to Jesus' triumphant work, the Father has put everything under Christ's feet and set Christ as head over everything for the church. Christ's lordship, his universal lordship is for the benefit of his people, the church. And if we had time just to go through Ephesians 3, 1 through 10, what we would see is that the mystery of God, his eternal plan that was hidden in ages past is now revealed in Christ through the church. It results in the birth and the growth of the 
church, the mystery is not abstract. In Christ and his church, it takes on concrete shape right before our eyes. It's a multi-ethnic, multinational humanity formed and growing, consisting of believing Jews and Gentiles who display God's multifaceted wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The church is the public display of God's power, grace, and wisdom central to God's redemptive plan. Well, the church has a mission. That's mission, not missions. The mission of the church is not less than missions, but it's more than missions. Together, we do carry the gospel to our neighborhoods and to the ends of the earth, but we also encourage one another in love. We establish and equip that every person might grow up in Christ to obey all he commands. Whereas our Constitution says, Temple Bible Church exists to glorify God by obeying the Great Commission. We glorify God by making disciples of the nations. This is a a reference to Matthew 28. There are several points in scripture where God reminds his people that his glory is to spread over all the earth. That's the mission of the people of God. In fact, that's what he tells Adam and Eve in, in Genesis. They're to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with the image of God. So his glory will cover the earth but they fail at their vocation. They fail at their mission, and it's no private affair. It's consequences we see today. But then God tells Noah after the flood, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth so that his image will fill the earth. He says to Abram, go from your father's house to land I'll show you, and I'll make your name great. And he goes on to say, and you, all the families or nations or tribes will be blessed. He says this that Israel is going to be a kingdom of priests so that the nations will know. In Psalm 67, a psalm that I just absolutely love, the psalmist describes what this might look like. And so we're going to look at Psalm 67, verses 1 through 4. We, we tend to look at psalms as kind of individual chapters by themselves, but they're not. They're, they're part of a book. Now, Psalm 67 in English is the 66th Psalm in Hebrew, and it fits right in the book. And I, when I was a missions pastor, I taught on Psalm 67 a lot. Before I was a missions pastor, when I traveled and, and taught about missions, I taught on Psalm 67 a lot. And this week, I'll, I'll just confess to you, I saw something in Psalm 67 that I hadn't seen in 25 years of reading it. And there were a couple of things. One is what it was originally for, and the other is what it's reminding Israel of. So I looked up this week, when would Israel read this psalm? Because they would read the psalms at different times that were significant to them. And so Psalm 67, what I'm about to read, Israel would read when Sabbath was ending. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. So as Sabbath is ending and they're about to go out and do work again, they sing aloud, bless us so that the nations will be glad. Make your face shine upon us so that the nations will know that you are God. They've got work to do. 
They've got a mission, but their mission is rooted in something. It's rooted in their history. And this is what I'd never noticed before. And I saw this last week, Psalm 67, one, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. Now that sounds an awful lot like a blessing that God told Moses to give to Aaron and his sons. They were going to be the priests of Israel. In number six, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. So Psalm 67, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. See, the psalmist starts by reminding these people who they are. You're a kingdom of priests. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. You're the people of Moses and Aaron. You've got a history. You've got a vocation. You've got a mission. But I think the psalmist goes further into Israel's history when he says that your way may be known on earth and your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. See, in Psalm 67.1, what the psalmist is doing is he's recalling Aaron's blessing. And in Psalm 67, two and three, he's reminding them of God's promise to Abraham that the nations will be blessed through him. Go from your country, from your kindred, from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and in him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. God's people have a mission and he's reminding them in Psalm 67, I've put my name on you. You're my treasured possession. You're my people. You're a kingdom of priests. They are his children and now in Christ, we are his children, the children of Abraham and the children of God. And like Israel had a vocation, we have a vocation. It's to make disciples of the nations and it's a vocation of both word and deed. So I wanna talk about how it's word and deed and then how it might look like for us. For the rest of our time this morning, be gracious to us and bless us that your way may be known on earth. God has a way and his word reveals it and so we teach the word. Paul told Timothy, preach the word in season and out of season. He told the Ephesian elders when his, his last time with them was ending, he's gonna leave them and never see them again. And he says, I'm innocent of the blood of every man. He said, I didn't cease to preach the whole counsel of the word. The mission of the people of God is a ministry of word that your way may be known on earth and your saving power among the nations. The word which points to Jesus makes us wise unto salvation. See, in Luke 24, Jesus has risen from the dead and there are two disciples. They're walking to Emmaus and he comes alongside him and they don't recognize him and then he breaks bread with them and, and they do. And then it says that the beginning of Isaiah, he teaches them from the scripture how the Christ must suffer 
and die and be raised and repentance must be preached in his name. We have a ministry of the word and the ministry points people to Jesus, but we also have a ministry of deed. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples, same word, tribe, tongue, nation, people. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy for you judge the peoples with equity and you guide the nations on earth. God's people were to live in such a way and serve in such a way and be a light in such a way that the guidance and justice and mercy of God were expressed through their lives to the world. They were a people who who shared the truth about their God and lived in such a way that the nations would see that Israel's God was the one true God. Uh, Ephesians 2 kind of describes what this might look like for a transformed people in our day. Ephesians 2 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once walked, living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Hey, remember who you are, church in Ephesus. You had problems, Right? But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's true of us today. Here's a beautiful thing about the love of God, that no matter how you or I might be experiencing it right now, God is actively loving us as much as he possibly can, as perfect as he possibly can. Nothing will change that. Nothing will take that away. Whatever you're facing, the love of God is for you. If you're in Christ in that moment, if you're not in Christ, the love of God would be for you to bring you to Christ. God was rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. He made us alive with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Why? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now you think about who we were apart from Christ, dead in sin, and the redemption and the love of God that we experience now. And it says in the age to come, he's gonna show the surpassing riches of his kindness, the immeasurable riches of his kindness, what's that going to look like, right? My goodness. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul reminds the church in Ephesus of who they are, and then he says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We've been transformed so that our lives would display the glory of God, that people would see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. God prepared them beforehand so that we, as redeemed people, would walk in them. Right, but Chase, wasn't Israel created for this? Yes, I mean, they, they were, but they missed their vocation. Humans are not good covenant partners with God. See, Adam and Eve, Adam was to be an obedient son and and a servant king and he failed in his vocation. And Abram, he says, 
life was his sister, tried to give her to a king. He failed at his vocation. Noah failed at his vocation. David failed at his vocation. Israel failed at his vocation. But then there was that one son, Jesus, who actively lived in perfect obedience to the Father, never sinned, died and took our sin upon himself. He stood as the king for the people and he stood to conquer death and sin forever on the cross and rose from the dead. And now his spirit is alive in us so we as his church do not fail at this vocation. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. See, Israel's, Israel's problem was this. God said, I'll make you a kingdom of priests. He said, I'll make you a kingdom of priests. Israel became a kingdom with priests and priests were a good thing, right? They, the, the sacrificial system was a tutor to point people to Christ, but Israel was never fully a kingdom of priests. They were to be a kingdom of mediators between people and God and they failed at their vocation. So, sometimes we do that. Sometimes we do that. We do it kind of in a couple of ways. One of the ways is that that we think we are a kingdom with priests, so to speak, not of priests. And we think ministry is the job of paid professionals, right? Or the uber Christians like, like Steve and, and Rick, right? But the reality is that as we shepherd, we're to establish and equip you for works of service. So if I ask you the question, who in Temple Bible Church is a full-time minister, just raise your hand. You're supposed to all raise your hand, Right? <laughs> See, if you're in Christ, we're a kingdom of priests. That's what Peter says about us. We're a kingdom of priests. We declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Sometimes we miss it that way. We think it's the job of paid professionals. And then another way I think that we miss it is that we think of the priesthood of the believer and we think it's an individual thing and we go, hey, I don't need the church. It's just Jesus and me. I've got my thing I'm doing and we're just fine. Except not according to Jesus, right? See, even Jesus knew he was part of the story, mind you. He was the blazing center around which everything and everyone in the story revolved. But Jesus had this sense of mission from God of what the God of the Old Testament came to accomplish. He always had it when he was 12 in the temple. The first words we hear, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? He knew he had to die to fulfill his father's will. He knew he was the son of man from Daniel 7. He applied Isaiah 61 to himself as the one who set the captives Free. He told his disciples he was a bridegroom who would be taken away in Mark, referencing back to Isaiah 53, 8, the suffering servant who by oppression and judgment would be taken away. He compared himself to Jonah, to the serpent in the wilderness. He knew his death was because it had been so determined in God's plan for his people. See, Scripture spoke of this plan for the Messiah, but it also speaks of a plan for the Messiah's people. And from the very moment we come to faith in Jesus, we are part of a people who have a mission. So if we fast forward to what this might look like for us as disciples, we make disciples for the glory of God. Two things are happening, word and deed, but we have to understand 
the nature of our disciple making and what it's rooted in. We share the good news, the Evangelion. We are heralds of the gospel. Well, a herald in the Old Testament, there's a religious sense, but there's also a, a, a secular sense. A herald was someone who declared good news of a king's victory, right? The people went out to battle. The king would lead his people out to battle. And when the king was victorious, they would send a herald back to the city or back to the country to declare the good news of the king's victory. I've never... Never thought about this, but I, I asked this question. I look, do, do you know what they did when they lost? When, when they lost, they sent people back too, but they didn't send heralds, right? When the battle wasn't actually won, they would send people back to kind of give advice, to give counsel, get ready to fight, right? They didn't do that when the king had already won the battle, though. And see, sometimes when we look at what it means to be heralds of good news, we give advice instead of good news. We tell people things like, eat this, not that, or spend your money this way, not that way, right? Or wear this, not that. And listen, listen hear me, you, you can't just eat whatever you want. That'll be bad for you, right? But see, the message we share is a message of a king that has won the victory. It is finished He's accomplished the work. And so we share of God's way and God's saving power through word and deed. Well, we share the word in corporate settings and large corporate settings and small corporate settings and as individuals. So, so we love to be in the word. And over the next 18 months in here, we're gonna be in the word. We'll be in first and second and third John. And then we'll be in the Sermon on the Mount. And then we'll look at some parables and look at spiritual disciplines. And then Lord willing, we'll... Look at the book of Exodus. We're in the Word in smaller corporate settings, in Sunday school classes that meet at 930 and 11, meet at 11 for our youth in a launch pad. We're in the Word together in small groups as we grow up in Christ together and we study the Word and are shaped by the Word in women's groups and men's groups. We're in the Word in families through devotions and praying and reading together. The, the resources that we have to help our children know Jesus today are just amazing. There, there's this reality. In fact, if you got young kids, there are a couple of resources I love. One's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. The other's called the Big Picture Bible. And both of these can help your kids at seven or eight years old understand the storyline of Scripture so much better than a lot of adults do. In fact, I've got a friend that when somebody new comes to faith in, his, in Christ in his church, it doesn't matter if they're eight or 80, he gives them the big picture Bible and says, read this over and over. We study the word as individuals who are part of a community. We memorize it, we meditate on it, we pray through it. We meet together to sharpen one another. Paul told Timothy, the things you've seen, heard, learned in me in the presence of many witnesses, these pass on to faithful men who will then pass them on to others. And the word is shared and the mission continues, but also deeds are shared. God's justice and mercy and grace bless the nations through the church as we give our lives to others through good works. Romans 12, one speaks of this deed and it looks like this. Let's see. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies 
as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your, your spiritual service of worship. Now, there, there are people in the world who argue over whether Christians should carry out the mission of God in word or deed, which is really a silly thing to do, right? Because word and deed are friends, not enemies. It's a word and deed thing. And we know it's not just word, it's also deed because Paul didn't say present your mouths as a living sacrifice, right? He said present your bodies. Present your bodies. So there are people that present their bodies locally and globally as a kingdom of priests, this temple language so that people will be drawn to God. In local outreach, people do this in prisons each week right around our town. People do it at crisis pregnancy centers. People carry out this deed ministry among those who don't have food by making meals and serving meals. Sometimes we, we do it in the church where we're loving one another, where we're bringing a meal or encouraging those. Or I, I got a, a, a friend that found himself in a difficult health situation not too long ago and when I went up to the hospital in this acute, fearful moment, the people of TBC had beat me there. It was this beautiful outpouring of care. We minister in word, we minister in deed. We do it through school supplies, through inviting people in, and we do it so that people will know Jesus. We do it locally among our neighbors, but we also do this among the nations. We share the gospel among the nations. We take the gospel to the ends of the earth. When I, when I walked in this building 21 years ago, one of the first things I noticed was this map that told about missions and I learned really quickly that TBC gave 20% of everything that comes into their general fund to the nations. Now you compare that, a stat this week from the Gordon-Conwell Center for Global Evangelization, less than one-tenth of 1% 1 of Christian income goes to reach the unreached, which is really unfortunate. That's not who we are, it's not who we wanna be. We don't just do it through giving, though. We do it through praying. There are missionary cards on our missions map. You can pray as a family for a missionary every day. There are all kinds of ways that we can carry out this mission in word and deed. I was talking to Pastor Tim about this, and he likes this concept of no matter where you are on your journey, there's something you can do, and it might be crawl, it might be walk, it might be run, but God calls us to be on the move or on mission. So he and I talked about what that might look like globally, what that might look like locally, because we've got local mission, we've got global mission. As the people of God, we carry this out. So what might crawl look like locally or, or globally? Well, it might be that, that you go, you know what, I, I've learned about... Hope Pregnancy Center or Discipleship Unlimited or I've learned about CTLC or Helping Hands. I'm gonna support this organization. I'm gonna give sacrificially. That'll be a first step for me. I'm gonna embrace this mission by giving to local partners or supporting a missionary or one of our international partners in Rwanda or Ukraine or, or the brewers who have served us as our global outreach pastor. Brandon and his family are headed back to the Middle East later this year. See, when you support our missionaries or partners, this beautiful thing happens that I just absolutely love. Let's say, let's say uh, Ashley Butte, who's taken the gospel to Japan. Well, you and I might never go to Japan, 
But if you partner with Ashley and you pray for Ashley, you have partnership in the gospel in this place your feet may never touch. God's using you to impact the other side of the world. And it's a privilege. I mean, it's a great first step of mission. Walk might look like this. Locally, it might be that, you know what, I've got a, a night or an afternoon once a week or once every two weeks or once a month, I can volunteer, I can serve in our community. I can give them my time, meet some new neighbors I don't know, share the gospel as I love them well. Maybe, maybe it'd be take the reset course globally. There's a six week course that our church, a couple of other churches are partnering with to just grow your understanding of God's heart for the nations. That's Sunday night this winter and into spring. Or maybe it's a run. Tim is looking for people. This might be five or six of you in the room. He's looking for people who say, I'll be TBC's point person with this local organization. I'm going to give a lot of time. I've got some good skill, decent organization. I'm going to work to be the point person for all TBC's ministry with this local organization. Or maybe God would call you as an individual or as a family. No matter what your plans are, maybe he would say, you're gonna set aside your plans for today and for life to go to the nations and surrender to Jesus. Well, why would we do this? Because we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We're a kingdom of priests who declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And we're on mission together. See, Psalm 67 tells us this prayer, God bless us, make your face shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among the nations, let the peoples praise you, let all the peoples praise you. I think it's telling us that our mission is a mission of word, our mission is a mission of deed, and our mission is the long game. See, the psalmist wrote, let the nations be glad, and Israel sang it for about a thousand years before Christ came. So as God's people on mission, we play the long game. I, I read a lady named Sarah Hagerty this week, and here's what she said about playing the long game. She said, learning to stay in what's hard is the mark of substance. Right? In, in a world so ready to divide over just anything, she says, we all want to be done with what feels hard. We feel squirmy with the unfinished. She said, I've become leery these days of words like breakthrough and phrases like I'm never going back and everything is different now. Not because I don't think there are roads to Damascus yet again, but because they're the miraculous exception, not the norm. They're the rare interinum in a life steadily in, once dire in one direction, growing in inches not feet. The best husbands, wives, sisters, daughters, pastors, mentors, mothers, fathers, friends are the ones that have learned the laborious but prolific practice of staying long or of long-suffering. Maybe this is the lost art, this ability to name the squirreliness and rather than let it drive us to the spiritual next best thing, the shift around the corner, the big and better of God in our lives, we just linger a little bit longer. It's the paradox of God. He saved the world in one weekend, but also after thousands of years. 
We serve the God of the new day, but also the God who tarries. But we've got to decide what the story of our life will tell. It took a whole lot to get us here. But are we going to live a story that makes sense? That was the struggle of atheist philosopher Emile Calais. He was a French philosopher, grew up atheist. He didn't see a Bible until he was 23 years old. He loves books, but he didn't love that one. His education left no place for God. But Emile Calais entered the army in World War I, and he was fighting in trench warfare. He was seeing his friends killed next to him. And that's the sort of thing that will make you aware that your worldview does not work. His best friend was killed, and then he was wounded, spent nine months in the hospital. He went back to reading books, but he said they were no longer the same books to me. Neither was my motivation the same. I found myself probing in depth for meaning during long night watches in the foxholes. I had a strange way of longing. I must say it, for a book that would understand me, but he didn't know of such a book. So what Calais did is he began to write down quotes from books that he loved. He thought, I'll make my own book. Had this commonplace journal, he carried it with him. And when he saw a quote he liked, he wrote it down. And he thought, when I decide it's done, I'll get it out and read it. And this will be the story that makes sense of my life. But here's what happened. It, it didn't happen. See, on this beautiful sunny day, he pulled his book out. It was going to be the book that understood him. He was sitting under a tree and he began to read it. But as he read, a growing disappointment came over him. The quotes he recorded mattered a lot when he wrote them down, but they didn't have the same significance. Instead of speaking to my condition, they only reminded me of my past circumstances. Well, his wife was an evangelical Speaking of scripture was frowned upon in their home, but that day she happened to be walking home. She ran into an evangelist who had a Bible in French and she thought, you know what, I'll bring it home and just see what happens. That very day she came home and she said, I've got this book. And he said, what's that? And she said, it's a Bible. And for some reason that day, Emile Calais said, give me the book. And he opened it and he began to read and he just happened to open to the Gospels and he began to read and he said, I read the words of Jesus and I read and I read and I read, now aloud with an indescribable warmth surging within. I could not find words to express my awe and wonder. And suddenly the realization dawned on me, this was the book that understood me. I needed it so much yet unaware I had, I had attempted to write my own in vain. He says, I continue to read deeply into the night, mostly from the Gospels, and lo and behold, as I look through them, I found the one of whom they spoke, the one who spoke and acted in them. He became alive in me. I found the book that would understand me. Emile Calais had an encounter with Jesus Christ, and it changed him forever. He spent the rest of his life living on missions, making disciples for the glory of God, eventually Going into theological education, he became a part of the story God is telling in the world. And he was never the same. He surrendered to Jesus. He became part of his people and he lived on mission. I just ask you as we close, what is the story your life is telling? Not are you becoming a preacher, but what's the story 
What's the story your life is telling that's gotten white? What's the story your life is telling in the schools of Bell County? What's your life telling a story of as you go about your business every day, as you go to eat with your friends, as you sit down with your family, as you visit with your neighbors? God's put us on a mission of word and deed to make disciples for the glory of God. And it's not about one task. It's about all of life and the story the lives of God's people tell together. God, would you give us wisdom as we stop right now? Not to say hello and goodbye, but really to come and just linger in your presence. And just say again, God, we set our plans for today and our plans for life aside as part of your people who are on mission. And God, would you invite us into your story or would you remind us of the story we're living in, Father, that the words and deeds we carry out every day would be making much of Jesus Christ. For his glory and for our joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.